Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. You know, it used to be that receiving a package or an envelope by special delivery was a big deal. Not so much these days. I mean, you know, if we order something from Amazon this morning and we don't have it on our porch by this evening, we're kind of disappointed in that, right? So special delivery isn't all that special anymore. It's just kind of normal. But I want to take you back to an earlier, simpler time when receiving a special delivery at Christmas time was a big, big deal. To hear that knock on the door, to hear the doorbell ring, and run to the door, to find a, an individual, a man perhaps in a uniform holding out to you a package or an envelope saying, special delivery, and, and you reach out in great anticipation and you receive it, and he holds out to your clipboard and says, sign here please, and you think to yourself, wow, what I'm receiving is of such value that the sender wants verification that I've received it. This must be really great. And, and you run back in the house with your Christmas package, your special delivery, and open it in great anticipation. There's nothing quite like getting a special delivery at Christmas time, especially when it says fragile, right? <laughs> well, we are calling our Christmas sermon series this year Special Delivery. And we're looking at the meaning of Christmas through the eyes of the Apostle John, as recorded in his gospel, the first chapter. Because whereas Matthew and Luke inform us of the special circumstances around Jesus' birth, messages delivered by angels, a choir singing Gloria at the news of his arrival, magi from the east coming to search out the one who was born king of the Jews, John approaches the story in a very different way. He, he unwraps the package and helps us understand what's inside. He explains what we've been given. It's like the other Gospels talk about the, the package and how it's delivered, and John marvels at what the package contains. Matthew and Luke deal in the persons and events of Christmas, while John helps us more understand the person of the Christ of Christmas. And so for these next three weeks, we're going to be camping out in just the first 18 verses of John's Gospel. Now, we're, one of the things that's helpful to understand about John and how he writes, because after the new year, we're going to continue on in John's gospel. And one of the things that makes John different is that he writes in a more thematic way, less chronological than the other gospel writers. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell the story of Jesus in a very similar way. This happened, and that happened, and the other thing happened, and then this happened. But John tends to write in themes that repeat. And so, for instance, he will have seven stories about Jesus performing miracles, and he'll keep coming back to this theme. Uh, there are signs, seven signs that point to Jesus' identity as the Son of God. 
And then he'll have Jesus make seven I am statements, and not all at once, they kind of repeat. He keeps coming back to these I am statements, and so Jesus will say, I am the good shepherd, I am the true vine, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and it's the accumulation of these I am statements that, again, point to Jesus' true identity. And we see that thematic approach even in the first 18 verses of John's gospel. And so there's a creation theme that begins in verses 1 through 3, and then he comes back to that theme in verses 10 through 13. In between, in verses 4 through 9, he sandwiches in uh, another theme, a theme that talks about Jesus as an unquenchable light coming into the world. And then he'll come back to that theme of Jesus as light in chapter 8. And then in verses uh, 14 through 18, he'll talk about Jesus in terms of a special kind of son, and he'll come back to that theme in chapter 3. And so as John helps us open the box and understand what's inside this special delivery that is Christmas, we'll discover what it means for Jesus to be the unrecognized creator, the unquenchable light, and the unique son. And our hope and prayer for this series is that we'll all come away from this Christmas season with a greater appreciation and awe of what we've been given in Christ. So let's dive right into the first theme of John chapter 1 that presents Jesus as the unrecognized creator. John's gospel starts off by saying, in the beginning. What does that remind you of? Genesis 1.1, the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Well, this is John's version of the creation story. And not to contradict what the Genesis 1 says about the creation, but to kind of expand on our understanding of the God who created. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So John is expanding our understanding of of what Genesis was talking about when it said, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And John is telling us that, well, one of the persons that was involved in all that was the Word. Now, even in, in the book of Genesis, there are hints of the Trinity, right? The Trinity is that teaching of the church that historically has said there is one God, but He exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And even in Genesis chapter 2, for instance, we find hints of the Trinity when God says, let us make man in our own image, right? Well, here, John is making explicit that one of the persons involved in the Genesis creation was, beside God the Father, one of the persons involved was God the Son, whom John refers to here as the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Now, this idea of word, logos in Greek, was used by Greek philosophers. And and when they talked about the word or the reason, what they meant by it was that there's some kind of universal reason. Uh, They used it to talk about vaguely some idea of the mind of God, this this thing that kind of held everything together. And John is saying, uh, yeah, there is something that holds everything together, but it's not a thing, it's a person. It's the second person of the Trinity. In the beginning was the word. And when John speaks of the Word here, he's speaking of that which is the perfect expression of God, the one who perfectly expresses the person and work of God to us. 
As the writer of Hebrews will put it, the Son is the exact representation of God's being. Or as John himself will put it in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So the Word, the Son, this Jesus is the one who most perfectly helps us understand what God is like. So much so that Jesus himself would say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And, and what else does John have to say about this word? He says, well, for one thing, he's, already, he's always exist, existed. In the beginning was the word. When God started creating, he was already there. He didn't come into being. He's always been. He is eternal, just as God the Father is eternal, just as God the Holy Spirit is eternal. He has always existed, and he is in every way in agreement with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He was with God, not just in terms of having always been with God, existing from eternity with the Father, but in terms of being of the same mind as the Father. As Jesus himself would say, I and the Father are one. And by that, he meant not just that they were in agreement at that, in that moment, but that they had always been one in word and purpose and action. The word has always existed. The word is in every way in agreement with God. In fact, he is God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. You know, when we look in the manger... I wonder how many of us don't look at him that way. We see a cute baby who would become our savior, but we forget that we're looking at the word, God the Son, the eternal creator who laid aside his glory to take on human flesh. There was a survey done by Lifeway Research two years ago that says that more than nine in 10 Americans celebrate Christmas. 91% of Americans celebrate Christmas. Everyone wants in on Christmas. More than 7 in 10, 72% say that the Jesus Christians believe in was actually born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. So they agree that it was a historical reality. 80% of Americans agree that Jesus Christ is the Son of God the Father, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. The average person isn't quite as sure about God the Son's existence prior to Jesus' birth, Around 41% say God's son existed before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. 32% disagree with that, and 28% just don't know. Now, among Christians who attend church on a regular basis, like, like many of you, the percentages are a little better. 98% believe Jesus is the son of God the Father. 95% say he was actually born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And 63% agree that the son of God existed before Jesus was born. Now, that means that even in a church like this, there may be as many as 37% of us who don't fully understand who Jesus is. See, God the Son didn't come into being one night in Bethlehem. He existed eternally with the Father. He was one with the Father. He was the one who carried out the Father's will when the universe was created. As it says in verse 3, there was nothing made that has been made without Him. He's, he is the Creator. In fact, uh, Psalm 33, 6 says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And here John is saying it wasn't just by the Father's words, but by this word who was in the beginning, who was with God, who was God. He is the active agent by which the Father went about all his work of creating. 
So that when the Father said, let there be light, it was the Son who made it so. When the Father said, let there be dry ground, it was the Word who made that happen. And so when the Father said, let there be animals and plants and birds in the air and fish in the sea, it was the eternal Word that made it so. He is one with the Father. He is God. He is the Creator. With all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now, we're not used to thinking of Jesus in these terms. You know, one of the first things that comes to mind when I say, who is Jesus? Very few of us are going to say right off the bat, well, He's the Creator. But that's how the New Testament Scriptures speak of Him consistently. Not only John, but the Apostle Paul says of, of Jesus that he is the one through whom are all things and through whom we exist. That's 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. In Colossians 1, 16, it says, For by him all things were created. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, the writer of Hebrews says that it was through Jesus that God created the world. So who is this Jesus? John starts off his gospel by saying he is the creator who deserves our worship. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, as I said before, just as a characteristic of John, he shifts from the theme of Jesus as creator to another theme. In verses 4 through 9, he starts talking about Jesus as light coming into the world. And we'll look at that explanation of who Jesus is next week. But I want us today to jump ahead to verse 10, where he picks up again on this theme of Jesus as creator who deserves our worship. So Jesus is the creator. He is God. He is the one through whom everything was made. But there's a problem. And the problem is stated in verse 10, where it says he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He was in the world. The world, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This is the mystery of Christmas, that the creator would enter <clears throat> his creation as one of us, that the son of God would stoop to become a son of man. Though existing with the father from all eternity, he entered time as a baby being born into this world as a child. Now, John seemingly marvels at the idea of this one through whom the world was made coming into the world in such an ordinary way. He was in the world, John says. The world's creator took on human flesh, yet, John says, the world did not know him. He looked so ordinary. There was no reason to think that Mary's son was the creator deserving of worship. I love the way Max Lucado describes it when he writes, The stable stinks like all stables do. The stench of urine, dung, and sheep reeks pungently in the air. The ground is hard. The hay is scarce. Cobwebs cling to the ceiling, and a mouse scurries across the floor. A more lowly place of birth could not exist. Wide awake is Mary. My, how young she looks. Her head rests on the soft leather of Joseph's saddle. The pain has been eclipsed by wonder. She looks into the face of the baby, her son, her Lord, his majesty. At this point in history, the human being who best understands who God is and what he is doing is a teenage girl in a smelly stable. 
She can't take her eyes off of him. Somehow Mary knows she is holding God. So this is he. She remembers the words of the angel. His kingdom will never end. He looks anything but a king. His face is prunish and red. His cry, though strong and healthy, is still the helpless and piercing cry of a baby. And he is absolutely dependent on Mary for his well-being. Majesty in the midst of the mundane. Holiness in the filth of sheep manure and sweat. Divinity entering the world on the floor of a stable through the womb of a teenager in the presence of a carpenter. She touches the face of the infant God. How long was your journey? This baby had overlooked the universe. These rags keeping him warm had been the robes of eternity. His golden throne room had been abandoned in favor of a dirty sheep pen, and worshiping angels had been replaced by kind but bewildered shepherds. Meanwhile, the city hums. The merchants are unaware that God has visited their planet. The innkeeper would never believe that he had just sent God out into the cold, and the people would scoff at anyone who told them that the Messiah lay in the arms of a teenager on the outskirts of their village. They were all too busy to consider the possibility. Those who missed his majesty's arrival that night missed it not because of evil acts of malice. No, they missed it simply because they weren't looking. Little has changed in the last 2,000 years, has it? He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to the place he created and had every right to possess, and yet the inhabitants of that place did not recognize him and would not give him his rightful place. He looked so ordinary. There was no reason to think that Mary's son was the creator deserving of worship. But that's not the worst of it. Because verse 11 goes on to say, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. As if it wasn't bad enough that the world he created failed to acknowledge his coming, he, he was also rejected by those to whom he was most closely related. He came home, and his own people turned him away. The very people who should have known best who he was because their prophets had been telling them for centuries what to look for refused to believe he was anything more than a peasant from Galilee. He was born a Jew, and not just a Jew, but a descendant of the royal line of David from which Messiah was predicted to come. And he was born in David's royal city, the very place the prophets said the Messiah would be born. And yet for all of those credentials, his own people would not receive him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Oh, some eventually came to believe that he was Messiah. There was Mary, the, the twelve, the women who traveled with them. And for a fleeting moment, that crowd that hailed him such on Palm Sunday, but by and large, the people from whom he descended and for whom he principally came would not acknowledge him as their Messiah, much less their creator. They judged him a fraud, a blasphemer, as one worthy of death, a chore the Romans were all too willing to carry out. Who is Jesus? John is showing us he is the creator who deserves our worship. But more than that, he is the visitor who went unrecognized. But that didn't take God by surprise. It was all a necessary thing for Jesus to carry out the most important part of his mission. 
It was on March 5th of 1994 that a deputy sheriff named Lloyd Prescott was teaching a class in the Salt Lake City, Utah library. And during one of the breaks, he went out into the hallway and he saw a gunman herding 18 hostages into the room next door. With a flash of insight, Prescott, who was dressed in street clothes that day, slipped in among the 18 hostages, followed them right into the room, and closed the door behind him. And when the gunman announced the order in which the hostages would be executed, Prescott identified himself as a police officer. A gun battle ensued, and Prescott fatally shot the armed man, setting the hostages free. Don't you see? God dressed himself in street clothes and entered our world, joining us who were held hostage to sin. And it was on the cross that a great showdown took place, one in which Jesus defeated sin and set us free from its power by giving his life for us. And that's the best part of John's explanation of who Jesus is. Yes, he is the creator who deserves our worship. He is the visitor who went unrecognized. But thirdly, he is the savior who can make us God's children. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God, the eternal Son, entered the creation he made by becoming one of us. And as a man, he lived the life we were all meant to live, tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without, without sin. All he ever did was obey the Father perfectly, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, teaching the truth, making the, the eyes of the blind to open and, and, and causing the lame to walk, stilling storms on the Sea of Galilee, and even raising the dead to life. And for all of that, he was accused of being a blasphemer and sentenced to die on a cross. He didn't need to go, but he went willingly to that cross, giving up his life of infinite worth as the only satisfactory payment for the sins of all mankind, taking the punishment we all deserved, dying in our place. And the authorities thought that they were rid of him. But when on the third day he came to life again, some began to believe that he was who he claimed to be, the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who can save us from our sin and make of us children of God. And people began to receive him as Savior and Lord they believed that one who could conquer sin and death could forgive their sin, could make them spiritually alive and bring them into right relationship with their heavenly Father. And so Jews turned to him, and Gentiles in great numbers began to believe in him, and the gospel began to spread to the ends of the earth and continues to spread to this day. And to this day, all who receive him, who believe in his name, are given the right to become children of God. You see, it's important that you understand that we're not all God's children just because we were born into the human race. I know it's commonly said, well, we're all just God's children, but that's not exactly true. The truth is that the human race, ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden, we have been in rebellion against God in solidarity with them. We are spiritually dead. God said to Adam and Eve, in the day you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die. And they died spiritually that day, and so did we. We are born spiritually dead, alienated from God, rebels against God. The human race is in a state of sinful rebellion against God. And we've all contributed to it. We've all done things and said things and thought things 
that violate God's holy law. We were born dead toward God in sin, in solidarity with our first parents. No, we're not all God's children. We become God's children, not by being born, but only by being born again. By, by experiencing a spiritual birth that takes place when we believe in Jesus, when we receive him as our Savior and Lord. And then we're given the right to become children of God. Notice it doesn't say, you know, you need to believe about Jesus. No, you need to believe in him. There are a lot of people who believe about Jesus that they believe, you know, yeah, he was born in Bethlehem. He lived a certain kind of life. He died. He was raised from the dead. You know, they believe facts about him. But when you believe in Jesus, when you receive him as your Savior and Lord, you're saying, not just I believe things about him, but I believe in him. I'm trusting in him to do for me what I can't do for myself to save me from the penalty of sin, to save me from sin's grip, to, to save me from spiritual death and to bring me to new life in Christ in relationship with God the Father. It says here, it's a miracle of God's grace, not a work of man. When, we're, when we believe and become God's children, John says we're born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's not a biological thing. It's not a function of human flesh or desire or anything we can do. It's something only God can bring about. But to all who receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor the will of the flesh nor the will of man, but of God. This was all God's doing. It was nothing any of us could have made happen. It was all of him. God had to write himself into our story for it to happen. You may remember, some of you who are old like me, you may remember the name Yuri Gagarin. He was the first man to ever orbit the Earth, a Russian cosmonaut on Vostok 1 in April of 1961. And it was famously said that when Gagarin turned, returned to Earth, that he claimed, I went to the heavens, I went into heaven, and I didn't see God. He must not exist. It's highly unlikely that Gagarin never said anything like that because Gagarin, to his dying day, was a devout Orthodox believer. Rather, it's likely that Nikita Khrushchev put those words in Gagarin's mouth. Nikita Khrushchev, the, the chairman of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union at the time. Khrushchev was debating with some people who thought that religion should have more of a place in the public realm. And Khrushchev's response to them was, why are you clinging to God? Here Gagarin flew into space, and he didn't see God. And so from that time forward, it's always reported that Gagarin said he went to, to, into space and didn't see God, so there must not be a God. Well, it was probably Khrushchev who said that, not Gagarin. Nevertheless, the uh, British author and philosopher C.S. Lewis was asked to comment on that. And so he wrote an essay about Gagarin claiming that he hadn't seen God when he went to heaven. And in his essay, C.S. Lewis said, well, you know, getting to know God is not in the manner of, you know, the way somebody on the first floor of an apartment building gets to know somebody on the top floor. It's not how it works. He said, it's more like the way Hamlet would get to know Shakespeare, the author of the play. Shakespeare would remain unseen to the character in the play unless Shakespeare wrote himself into the play. If Shakespeare had written himself into the play he created, Hamlet would have had an opportunity to get to know Shakespeare. 
Well, that's apparently what British author Dorothy Sayers did in some of her detective novels. Dorothy Sayers was a, a novelist, an Oxford-educated woman who wrote mystery novels. In fact, she wrote a, a series of 11 of these novels that featured a character named Lord Peter Wimsley. Wimsley was a gentleman detective, an amateur sleuth, quite good at sleuthing, but not very good at life. His life was kind of a mess, and he was always kind of lovelorn, just couldn't find anybody to really love him. And at some point in that series, Sayers also introduced into her novels a character named Harriet Vane, whom she described as an Oxford-educated novelist who wrote mystery novels. She was writing herself into that series. Now, Harriet Vane had an on-again, off-again relationship with Wimsley through several books, and she thought him rather strange and refused his repeated offers of marriage. But finally, in one of the later novels, at the very end, she accepts Wimsley's proposal, and Wimsley's troubled life is rescued by his marriage to Harriet Vane. It was Tim Keller who wisely pointed to this as a beautiful illustration of the gospel. He said, Dorothy Sayers fell in love with her own character and then wrote herself into the story in order to rescue him. Isn't that what God has done for us in Christ? The creator himself wrote himself into the story of his creation in order to rescue creatures whom he loved in spite of their sin and rebellion. You see, God the creator came as a child to make us children of God. God the creator came as a child to make of us children of God. Or another way to think of it is God the creator came into this world to make us new creations in Christ. C.S. Lewis put it this way, the son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. I know a pastor by the name of Leith Anderson who years ago visited Manila in the Philippines. And he said, um, strangely enough, they took us to the last place we'd expected to go when we went to the Philippines. They took us to the garbage dump in Manila because they wanted us to see how tens of thousands of people lived on that garbage dump. They scavenged for materials other people had thrown away to build shacks for themselves. They sent their children out in the morning to scavenge for food that other people had thrown away so that they could have family meals. He said, one of the amazing things is that there are generations of people who've lived on that garbage dump. They were born there. They were raised there. They married other people who had been raised in the garbage dump. They built their own shacks. They had their own children. They sent their own children out to scavenge for food. They died there without ever having left the garbage dump, ever. He said, even more amazing than that is that there are also Americans living on that garbage dump missionaries. Missionaries who left their, the comforts of home to go and live there in that filth so that people who would never otherwise have an opportunity to know the love of Jesus could hear the gospel. And Anderson says, now that's amazing. But even more amazing than that is the journey the Son of God took from heaven to earth knowing what he was leaving behind and knowing what he was coming into, the mess this world was in, he came on a mission to save the human race. 
God the creator came as a child to make of us children of God. To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. And the most important question for you to answer today is, have you received him? Have you believed in his name? Not just do you believe things about Jesus, but have you put your faith and trust in him to say, Lord Jesus, I need you to do for me what I can't do for myself. I deserve judgment. I deserve your wrath, but I trust in you, in your work, and coming to this world, and dying in my place, and coming alive again so that I can have eternal life with you. To put your faith and trust in Jesus to be your rescuer from sin and your leader for life is how you pass from spiritual death to spiritual life. Believe in his name and he will give you the right to become a child of God. Jesus is the unrecognized creator who empowers us to become God's children. That's a special delivery indeed, don't you think? Let's bow in an attitude of prayer. As we're in an attitude of prayer, I just if, if you know Jesus as your Savior and you have received him, you've believed in his name, just give thanks today for what God has done for you. But if you're here today and you're saying, you know what, I never kind of understood it that way, that I need to respond to what God has done, that Jesus has done all that for me, that I need to receive him. I need to believe in his name. Well, if you're at that point and, and you're saying, I can't remember a time when I've ever made that deliberate choice. Maybe this is your moment. And, and what you need to do right now is simply cry out to God from your heart and, and pray something like, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I confess that like everyone else, I have done things and said things and thought things that violate your holy law. That like everyone else, I deserve judgment. But I thank you for sending your eternal son to earth for me. To represent me by taking my place on the cross, by dying for my sin. I put my faith and trust in, in Jesus in what he did when he gave his life on the cross and rose from the dead so that I can have forgiveness of sin and eternal life. I receive him now as my Savior and Lord, my rescuer from sin, my leader for life. I believe in his name. He's the one I'm counting on to bring me from death to life, to bring me from guilt to to, to the declaration of, of innocence. I'm trusting in him to make me new in Christ. You know, if that's the prayer of your heart today, if, if you're at the point of saying, all right, I, I, I realize now I can't do anything to affect that salvation, but I can trust in Jesus who did it for me. I can become God's child. And if that prayer is a reflection of what's on your heart this morning, let me just say welcome to the family. Welcome to God's family. Lord, we are grateful for all that is ours in Christ. 
We're grateful for your love that would send your only begotten son to save us from our sin. We're grateful for Jesus and his great love for us that he loved us while we were still sinners and wrote himself into the story of, of, our, of creation, becoming a creature himself so that we could get to know you, the God who loves and saves. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who might have put their faith and trust in Jesus who made a deliberate decision today to say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I trust in Jesus. I believe in his name. I receive him as my rescuer from sin and leader for life. Lord, I pray that you would grant them assurance right now based on the truth of your word that having believed, they have a right to be called your child. That those who believe have been saved. And so, Lord, I pray that this Christmas may be a Christmas unlike any other for, for many of us here today, that we would go through this Christmas season with a greater awareness and joy because of all that is ours in Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.